The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University, Chicago, is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for spring 2024 include the annual Newman Lecture, given by political scientist Jason Blakely, who will discuss his conversion experience, a celebration of the great Catholic jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams in a series of events featuring Deanna Witkowski, and the annual Cardinal Bernadine Common Cause Lecture, featuring Cardinal Christophe Pierre, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for Saints and Sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Who has a sense of foreboding this week. Lent is coming, but so is a birthday. And the order you get, like, when my birthday lines up with Ash Wednesday, I just Mm. feel like I meant to internalize something about that. About dying. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So... Yeah, that's how I'm And Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day, all rolled (laughs) up into one. So my birthday is not Valentine's Day. It's two days before, but still. Yeah, um, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, Super Super Bowl coming up. Lots of of, like ups and downs in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. But Um, um, we're not not at Lent yet. No, which means we are, we're cleaning out our liquor cabinet before we get into our Lenten fast from alcohol. Um, And we had some Fernet Branca uh, on the cart. Yes, we use that in... uh, what we, I believe, called a newfangled, mm-hmm. um, but we didn't use a lot of it. And uh, as you reminded me, it was not cheap. No. So can't we let it go to waste. Can't let it go to waste. So we're having it over ice. So for yeah. Bronca over ice. So if you like um, Robitussin, you might be into this drink. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like it's. No, it, it grows on you. The first sip, I was just like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, it feels like an old person. It feels like a 30 year old drink. Yeah. So yeah. cheers. Cheers. And we are double fisting this week with the idea that we're we will be fasting for forty days after this. Uh, we have a second drink called the Fat Fryer that we're, we're uh, enjoying, but you'll hear more about that during our interview this week, which is a good segue, Ashley, into who are we talking to? Yes, we have a very exciting conversation this week with Bishop Donald Hying of Madison, Wisconsin. This was the first stop on our Jesuitical twenty twenty four road trip. Um, we're trying to get it out there, and Madison was a very hospitable and not warm outside, but warm welcome for us there. That's that's very, very true. We had a really fun conversation with Bishop Hying. We do a lot of, I, I don't know, talking about hard things in the church and things that need to be unpacked or explained or critiqued or we talk about how we feel about these things. But this was really a conversation to just kind of bask in all the reasons that we love the church. So Bishop Hying had written a column about why he loves the Catholic Church, and we thought it would be a great jumping off point for the three of us just to kind of, you know, have a chance to, to nerd out a little bit, to express why we love being Catholic. I feel like we don't get to do that enough. Agreed. And in Signs of the Times, we talk about a street artist who's gotten an official Vatican stamp of approval for his paintings of Pope Francis. And we discuss a new document from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith on invalid sacraments. So that's coming up along with our interview with Bishop Hying. But first, we have a few words from our sponsor this week. Are you searching for a meaningful way to get closer with Jesus this Lent? Let me introduce you to a fantastic opportunity, Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Scherslick. Their podcast is quickly gaining popularity, offering daily reflections on the Catholic faith through the rosary. 
Each day, Dr. Mike dives into a different topic, guiding listeners in meditation while praying the rosary alongside a global community. Yeah, in just under 20 minutes, you'll experience scripture, meditation, and the rosary, all designed to fit seamlessly into your daily routine. Whether it's during your morning coffee or your daily commute, it's a wonderful chance to start your day with faith and reflection. And you can easily find them on your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or visiting their website at dailyrosary.net. Don't miss this chance to enrich your Lenten journey and strengthen your relationship with God. Join them on Daily Rosary Meditations today. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So this year, a street artist in the Vatican who we saw some of his work while we were there, his, he goes by Maupau. Uh, we were debating the pronunciation beforehand. Um, his name is Mauro Palota, and he is known for the the super pope graffiti around Rome. There, maybe you remember seeing them. Maybe you've yeah. seen them if you're listening um, in viral posts and things. There's one where Pope Francis is like blasting off as Superman. Um, and he, he's painted these kind of throughout Rome. But initially they were scrubbed away by the, the Italian police, but they've been allowed to stay up. Yeah. And the Vatican actually invited this artist to illustrate Pope Francis's 2024 Lenten message, um, which this year it emphasizes the need for the faithful to let go of hopelessness and bondage and to find a path of inner freedom. The first of these illustrations is out. It shows Pope Francis uh, walking through a field of nails and uh, has a quote from Exodus. Um, But one of these will come out each week during Lent. um, And he got to go to the Vatican and talk about his work. He was invited to the Vatican, and at the press conference, he said, quote, representing Christian values via art has always been one of the greatest goals of painting and sculpture, and I've tried to synthesize the profound concepts expressed by the Holy Father through pictorial language in a simple, easily readable style. Um, I think it does look really good. The Vatican has gotten some flack. Their their passion for <laughs> For design. graphic design in the past. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been, I don't know, the best. Um, and I think this is definitely a step in the right direction. So good on the Vatican and good on Maupau. What's our next story, Ashley? So another day, another document from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's been they've been pretty active under the new leadership of Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez. Um, and the latest one concerns how priests and bishops administer the sacraments. So basically, it was clarifying that they really need to stick to the script when they're celebrating baptisms, the Eucharist, or doing confirmations. Yeah, the document is Justice for Bisque, not my favorite kind of bisque, that would be lobster. But the translation is deeds and words. And the reason that the DDF put this out is that they had heard from Catholics who were distressed over having to be rebaptized or reconfirmed after realizing that a, a sacrament they had received um, that was declared invalid because a priest had deviated from the correct formula. But what, so what does this like mean in practice? Like, Are there examples of this happening that we can point to? Yeah. So Cardinal Fernandez notes in his introduction that, you know, there are cases where a priest during the, a baptism will say, I baptize you in the name of the creator, or others will say, we baptize you, or I baptize you in the name of mama and papa. I hadn't heard that one before. But there was a really notorious case here in the United States um, a couple of years ago. A priest in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, had to resign in 2022 after it became clear that he had rendered thousands of baptisms invalid because he used the phrase, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when he should have said, I baptize you. Yeah. And then there was another case in 2020 where there's a priest in Detroit who was watching a home video um, of his baptism 
and the priest had used the we baptize language instead of the I baptize language and basically found out that his baptism was invalid, but so was then his ordination, which then meant all of the baptisms that he had done were invalid. So it created really a mess for a ton of people in that diocese. Yeah. And I think some people might hear this and just be like, why are they being such sticklers for the words? Like, don't the words work if he has the right intention. But one of the reasons that Cardinal Fernandez gives for why we care so much about this is because the the priest does not own the sacraments. Like they are acting in the place of Christ. Even if they think they're being pastoral, when you take what the church has given and make your own spin on it, you're really making it more about you. And Cardinal Fernandez says that, you know, the faithful have a right to have access to the sacraments in the way that the church has given them. Yeah. And it does mention, it does like give some sympathy for the intention, right? Because I don't think anybody who used different words was intending to not baptize someone correctly. But the DDF does say like, and it said this for a long time, that the three things that make a sacrament valid are intent is one, right? So you have to mean it. But the other two are form. So the words used and the matter. So like the bread, the the wine, the, the water for baptism, like you need kind of all three of those things for it to be a, a quote, valid sacrament. Yeah. And I think I was kind of surprised that this came from Fernandez so quickly after a document that really was all about doubling down on being pastoral and how how we treat Catholics. Flexibility, right? Yeah. Like, so it's a, the, he emphasized there's room for pastoral creativity and flexibility in these like on the ground situations. That's what we were talking about in our, yeah. our last episode on this. Mm-hmm. But then I thought about it and it may seem like as if he's coming off as emphasizing, you know, rigor and being very precise. But I think, as we said before, it came from actual a pastoral response to these Catholics who came to him and were very distressed by learning that what they thought was valid had not been. I think that causes stress among us as Catholics who don't have a home video of our baptism um, to see whether they stuck to the script for us. Right. And, I, you know, I look, and the reality is like, most of human history, there are no home videos yeah. of <laughs> baptisms, right? So there's no way to go back and check. And I think underlying all this is like there's a fear that like our an invalid baptism is somehow connected to our salvation. But I don't want people to like walk around thinking that if they don't dig up and verify that their baptism was used in the same way that they're going to hell or something. Because I I think, you know, as the Pope said, he is he hopes that hell is empty. And I and I'm pretty sure that this is not going to be the top reason that people are sent there. All right, now stick around for our conversation with Bishop Donald Hine. But for now, finally, I will stop talking and turn it over to you. Thank you, Zach and Ashley. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Hello, and welcome to a live recording of Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners, probably more saints in this room. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks, which we have here. Um, and we are so pleased to be here with you all. I'm Ashley McKinless, and this is my co-host, Zach Davis. Hey, Wisconsin. It's so good to be here. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Uh, Bishop Donald, thank you so much for, for being with us today. I wanted to quickly introduce our drinks. So one of the conceits of the show is we're trying to, you know, 
create spaces where we can have, you know, casual but real conversations. And so sometimes a beverage helps with that. So uh, <laughs> I hope you all were able to find the signature cocktail this evening. I wanted to introduce it um, for our listeners that are not in the room. We've got a Fat Friar, in honor of St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast we're celebrating uh, this week. The ingredients, we got uh, Benedictine, apple brandy, triple sec, and lemon juice. So if anyone, if everyone would mind uh, grabbing their glass and raising it, and the cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Bishop. <laughs> yeah, um, we're in Wisconsin, so I couldn't resist getting some... Uh, <laughs> Uh, New Glarus Spotted Cow, too. So I will be taking sips of that as well. You're really double fisting during the podcast with the bishop? <laughs> yep. I guess so. Uh, and spot, spotted Cow is fruit in our diocese, so it's, it's and, homegrown. And you, can, and you can only get it in Wisconsin for, for people okay. listening. I know you all of you know that. but yeah. All right. Double cheers. All right. Bishop, it's so wonderful to have you here. You recently wrote an article about why you love the church. And there are, there are many reasons we all know. But before we get to some of the specifics you mentioned there, I'm wondering if you could talk about when you first learned to love the church, both like, you know, when it was passed down to you in your childhood, but then when it really became your own and not just not just your own parish, but the universal church. Yeah, when I think of my childhood and um, my formation in the faith, it's all visual. So I think of my home. So there was a holy picture in every room and in every corner. So no matter where you were, there was somebody holy looking at you. <laughs> um, perhaps some of you can relate to that. It always seemed like the eyes followed you around the room, right? <laughs> but I don't think my parents intentionally set out to build a Catholic culture in our home, but they just naturally did that because of their beliefs. So I, I just think of especially uh, a picture of the sacred heart above our television in the living room and back then your television was a, a huge piece of furniture <laughs> but i remember even before fully understanding who jesus was i would look at that picture while i was watching gilligan's island or beverly hillbillies <laughs> and somehow i instinctively knew that that man loved me and that somehow his spirit was in our house and that somehow it mattered very much like somehow i just instinctively knew all that by looking at the picture. The other visual is just going to mass, looking at the stained glass, watching the priest. Again, at a very early age, not fully understanding uh, what was happening, but just the visualization of all that. So I, I think I, my first experience of the church was really by seeing, which um, really speaks to our sacramental imagination and the power of Christ as sacrament. I think when I like first realized that God loved me, it was very much from the people in my local parish, my my local community. I was uh, I was raised. I like to tell people a little like haphazardly Catholic. So we would um, I was baptized and got most of my sacraments of initiation on time. But it wasn't really until high school when uh, a friend invited me to youth group that I was just sitting in the room and it hit me like a ton of bricks that that God loved me unconditionally um, and. Uh, I've been unpacking that ever since, but I also recall this moment um, going to Rome for the first time and, you know, seeing the Vatican and feeling like, oh, this is my, like, this is also my my church and my culture and my heritage in some ways. Is there, do you have a moment where you, like, realize that there's, this church was both, like, very particular, but also, like, quite universal and diverse in some ways? Yeah, I would say 
you know, you mentioned going to Rome. I'd say um, doing mission work in Dominican Republic really opened me up to realize uh, the church is abundantly present in so many different cultures. And beauty of Catholicism is that we hold on to the essential, and that's what unifies us, and yet there's this remarkable variety of expressions of how that's lived in the world. So Catholicism in the Philippines looks different than Catholicism in Ireland, than in Africa, obviously, than in in Rome. So I really think the universality for me was was going to the Dominican Republic and realizing these people that I had never met were already my brothers and sisters in the Lord and that I could celebrate Mass with them. And we all just instinctively understood what, what this was, even though I was still learning Spanish. So when I went there, I knew two words in Spanish, cerveza and baño. <laughs> I figured that's all I'd ever need. Um, so if you ever want to really experience poverty, go to a place where you don't speak the language because it's not only humbling, it's humiliating. So people talk louder at you as if somehow that's going to help you understand. <laughs> but no, I would say it's being, it was being immersed in a different culture and being called a minister there that really opened me up to, to realize the, the universality of the faith. Yeah, I, I spent some time in college in China, and I also, my Chinese was not great. I also knew the words uh, a pijo, which is beer in Chinese, uh, so I committed that. But I remember feeling so lost um, because I couldn't I couldn't read any characters, and so much was so different. Um, and then I was in a, in a rural village that was entirely Catholic and went to mass there, and all of a sudden, like, this was the thing I understood. Um, and having that experience in the middle of nowhere in China, like, and yet feeling like I connected to, to those people and people who had worshiped there for generations. And, you know, th that church has its own challenges, but that was, it was a really beautiful moment for me to like feel connected to the universal church that the, what was happening there was happening in my hometown in small town, Ohio, happening all over the world. I mean, it's quite a remarkable thing. You're completely at home in a place that you've never been before to quote Rocky Mountain High by John Denver. Right? <laughs> um, but that, that's, it's really, that's the beauty of the church, right? We're, we're always at home in the church because the church is our, our family. Yeah. I'm wondering how your, your love for the church has been changed, deepened by, by becoming a bishop. Because from the outside, it, it can seem like a thankless task sometimes. And in so many roles, as you, as you move up through the ranks, you get more and more disconnected from being, you know, interacting with people on the ground um, and feeling like that direct service that you had in the Dominican Republic. So I'm wondering how, how you handled that change and, and what maybe surprised you and opened up for you about this church you've been serving for so many years. I don't, I don't think any bishop was not surprised when he was called to be a bishop. So I never imagined in a million years I'd ever be a bishop. I'm convinced that they just messed up on the paperwork and too, <laughs> were too embarrassed to walk it back, perhaps. But um, I would say I realize the enormity of what God has entrusted me with. And I think I've given God 10,000 reasons not to trust me, and yet he's entrusted me with this, this ministry, this, this office, this work, this service. God has never given me one reason not to trust him, and yet so often I struggle to. But I still think of myself as a parish priest. It's just on a broader landscape. But I think to be an effective bishop, you always have to be in touch with the people. So I've never wanted to be just a picture on the wall. 
or a name in the Eucharistic prayer. So my goal my first year here was to go to every single parish and visit. And I had this beautiful plan, and then something called COVID happened, which messed all of that up. But but nothing gives me greater joy than on a Sunday morning to get up and drive to one of our parishes, and for no other reason at all than to simply uh, celebrate Mass uh, to be with our people. Because that always has to be the point. And when you read the job description of a bishop, first thing is to go preach the gospel. So about three years ago, um, after we had launched our evangelizing initiative, I just decided once a month I was going to do a three-night parish mission um, preaching on the kerygma. So I've done that almost every month of every year for the last three years. And the kerygma I, is for the uninitiated. Yeah, so basic proclamation of the faith. So if, if you had to give an elevator speech on Catholicism in about seven minutes, what would you say? And it comes down to uh, Jesus is Lord. But speaking of that, I was on an airplane a couple months ago. A woman came on board, and she saw my collar, and she said, oh, I feel so much better knowing you're on board. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that doesn't help me. Who's going to hear my confession? <laughs> Who's going to hear my confession when this thing goes down? Right? This wasn't Alaska Airlines, was it? It was not. <laughs> I think. Right. But she ended up sitting next to me, and she turned to me with great interest and said, I was raised without any faith. I was never baptized. Tell me what you believe. And I thought, this is amazing. I have a captive audience for two hours. This is going to be great. <laughs> so I just gave her a basic explanation of the essence of our faith. And at the end, she said something that absolutely shocked me. She said, everything you've said is so beautiful, but it's so beautiful that it seems too good to be true. Is that a remarkable response? And I said, but can you dare to believe for a moment that it is true? Because if you believe that all of this is true, it's going to completely change your life. Like if you really let God in and really believe you're made in God's image and likeness, that you have a soul, that you're going to live forever, that you have a mission, you have an identity. If you believe all those things, it, it changes everything. So that, that's what I try to be about as a bishop. You know, one of the things about, I think, the the first proclamation is in Francis has invited us, Pope Francis has invited us to, you know, meditate on this and think about this a lot. Um, you know, remember that, try to think back to that time where you first fell in love. And I think that's so important because, you know, love, like in any relationship, it, it matures and it changes and it develops over time. I'm wondering how you see your own love for the church. How is that matured and differed than maybe when you were um, a young boy or a, a young priest or, or, or a young bishop? Like, what is, what is a mature love for the church look like? Yeah, I think it's deepened for me, perhaps precisely in realizing the, the failings, uh, the weaknesses of, of the members of the church and you know, certainly leaders as well. We, we look at all the, the scandals, the conflicts, the, the challenges that the church faces and has faced for a long time. And it leads me to ponder what I find the most astonishing thing in the Gospels after the resurrection itself, and it's this, that after perfectly saving us, like perfectly accomplishing the deed of the salvation of the human race, right before he goes to heaven, Jesus hands over his mission to sinful, fallible human beings, and the exact people that completely betrayed him and ran away from the cross. So he hands it to them. 
and entrust the Holy Spirit to them, knowing that there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be falls from grace, there's going to be scandals, there's going to be divisions, and yet he entrusts to us uh, his mission. I, I find that both astonishing and inspiring. So when I think of the church, I, I think of you know saints and sinners, martyrs. I think of the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas and Mozart's Mass in C minor, and uh, the poem The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. So when you look at just the totality of, of the Catholic Church, it's it's this people of God moving through time and space onto the kingdom of heaven. To mature in that, to fall in love with the church, and to realize that for us as Catholics, it's always a both and. So no one would no one would say that you can have the church without Christ. But I think a lot of people today would say, but I can have Christ without the church. So give me Jesus. Church is too much baggage, too much history, you know, too much that I, I don't want to carry. But for us as Catholics, we can't have the church without Jesus, but we also can't have the fullness of Jesus without the church. And that's what I both love and find amazing at the same time. So often, you mentioned the, the follies, the mistakes, the scandals. Um, I think a lot of people who would say they can have Christ without the church might think that because so much of what they do see, you know, if they're they're reading about the church, it's often not it's not good news. And as uh, we work in Catholic media, and so much of our work is about covering the the controversy, the scandal, and so I'm wondering how how you hold those things <laughs> as a bishop, as a someone who has to be the the face of the church in your diocese. Yeah, it's a constant call to self examination, call to conversion called the purification, and to realize that uh, the church isn't simply the hierarchy or the clergy or the things that capture the news, that you know, the church is, what, 99.8% laity. Somebody, I forget who, what theologian it was, but somebody asked the theologian, what would the church be like without the laity? And it would be like, it would look pretty ridiculous, right? <laughs> so 99% of the church is the laity. So it's it's ultimately, it's the people of God struggling to live the faith day in and day out. And all of us are sinners, and yet all of us hope for grace. But, but I think we live in a remarkably challenging time, both of opportunity and obstacle of sin and grace, but ultimately one of hope that I think God is doing something extraordinary in the present moment. And really, so much of what we've clung to in terms of structure, ways of doing things, programs perhaps is falling away. And perhaps what the Lord is inviting us to do is to go back to the purity of the gospel, realizing you can't just erase 2,000 years and we need structure, we need organization. But, but to go back to the freshness of Pentecost morning, when Simon Peter stood up in all the fire of the Holy Spirit, and said for the first time, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. Where do, where do you see that concretely happening? Where do you see the, that inbreaking, either in your diocese or in the larger church? Yeah, in, in our diocese here, I'd say we're, we're doing this huge strategic planning called Into the Deep, and uh, we've reduce the number of masses. So one of our goals is that 50% of our masses would be 50% full and that our priests would not celebrate more than three masses a weekend just so they wouldn't be exhausted. 
People have been asked to move, to change, to adapt. And despite many challenges, mass attendance in our diocese is up 4.5% than it was a year ago. And many people just say, what a joy it is to, to meet people from other communities, to be in a fuller church, um, Can we pause the there for a second? Bible study. Just the full, the full church. I, I, I appreciate one that you're even counting. <laughs> yes. uh, that's every, I, I every like, October we do a mass count. Yeah, well, I feel on. like there's a lot of places that are afraid to do that. But as a young person, like to walk into a church that's you know very different than the church that we experienced earlier tonight, where it's you know pretty empty, music is lackluster. Uh, you have three pews to yourself. And in Brooklyn, they're beautiful, huge churches. And so you're constantly reminded of what was at some point. <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like uh, it, it's difficult to, to really be there and worship like that. So I, I imagine that even someone walking in and, you know, having to like, you know, shove down from the end of the pew into the middle because someone showed up late. But to have like, you know, other people worshiping with you has to be such a like breath of fresh air. And that's what many of our people say about the change that we're, we're attempting to embrace, right? I also see it in young people. So we have a program called Love Begins Here. So it's kind of um, Catholic youth mission, but staying at home. So instead of going to, say, Appalachia or somewhere else, they, they serve here in our own local community, and we get 600 youth coming to that. I see it in... A, campus ministry at UW-Madison. Uh, currently, St. Paul's has 45 college students in RCIA that are preparing to enter the church uh, this spring. UW-Platteville, I, I go down and do the Easter sacraments of initiation. There's usually 15 college students getting baptized every spring. So I see all over, we may not look at it necessarily in terms of numbers, you always want more numbers, but when I look at the quality of the young people that really have their hearts on fire and their eyes fixed on Christ, it gives me tremendous hope, tremendous hope. Embark on a journey of spiritual elegance with Saints for Sinners, where each one-of-a-kind saint medallion is imported from Italy and meticulously hand-painted in New Orleans. Indulge in the rich stories of saints. Who's your personal favorite? As you observe Lent this year, you may discover new favorite saints. Whether it's Jean-Baptiste de La Salle, the patron saint of teachers, or Saint Christopher, the patron saint of travelers. As Easter approaches, imagine gifting this extraordinary piece to someone special, a gesture that transcends the ordinary. Explore the divine craftsmanship and profound symbolism that Saints for Sinners offers at saintsforsinners.com. Embrace the beauty of tradition and connection in every lovingly crafted medallion. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
maybe want to pivot a little bit to maybe just like listening through some things that you mentioned in your article. We'll just kind of go through some things that that we we love about the church uh, concretely. Um, one of the things you mentioned is the church being being a teacher of of truth um, is like one one thing you you love about the church. Uh, curious, you know, why that like particular speaks to you. Yeah, I think we, we live in an age that that questions whether there is such a thing as truth, and to think that the Lord has revealed to us everything that we need to know about God, about our own human nature, about our destiny, and that that's been faithfully handed down and expanded and grown organically over two thousand years is just a, a entrancing thing to me. And I also think that the church is a perfect fusion at her finest of both truth and love. So if you love someone, you love them enough to tell them the truth, and every parent knows that, even when it's hard to receive that truth. But truth can never be told without love. So truth without love can become harsh, rigid, judgmental. Love without truth can be vacuous, sentimental. Put the two together and you have the firepower of the gospel. So when I came to Madison, the day of your appointment, you come, there's always a press conference, and I knew this question was coming. So our, our local daily paper um, is there, and they ask me, so are you conservative or liberal? It's the first question. So I said, I'm neither. I'm Catholic. And um, that cuts both ways sometimes, right? So we don't fit neatly, nor should we fit neatly, into the political spectrum that's before us. And I think sometimes that befuddles people because they want categories, right? So the church is always both beyond that, but also immersed in it as a leaven to form people to, to live the gospel of the world. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me as a, an employee of American Magazine. Our, our, our motto is pursuing the truth in love. So I don't, certainly don't see them as, as contradictory in reality or in theory, but I think a lot of times people struggle with putting it into practice. Um, I've, you know, I've, I hear from young Catholics, but Catholics of many ages who, you know, they, they say they want to love the church, but they don't, they don't feel like the church loves them back. So maybe they've had an experience where someone fell short of the, of the love part when pursuing the truth in love. So how do you, how do you handle that in, you know, concrete pastoral situations where you're having to tell hard truths? Right. I think it's, only in the context of relationship that perhaps the truth can be fully received. So when I think of um, like the teachers or the seminary formators that impacted me the most, it was the ones that I knew cared about me as a person. And it's those that I really listened to. So I think when somebody knows that the other loves them unconditionally as a person, then the, the possibility to, to speak truth or even challenging truth can be more appropriately received because it's not seen then as rejection or um, alienation. It's seen as here, here's where we stand in terms of faith. You have these struggles. I have these struggles. We're called to love each other in Christ, and that supersedes everything. So I, I think the way Jesus ministered is a beautiful example he loved people where they were at, ate with tax collectors, think of Zacchaeus, he calls Zacchaeus out of his tree, invites himself over for dinner. The crowd murmurs, he's gone to the home of a sinner as a guest. 
But that unconditional acceptance that Zacchaeus experienced from the Lord gave him the freedom and perhaps the courage to experience conversion. So it's like the Lord loves us, but he, he wants he loves us as we are, but he wants to help move us towards a greater greater growth. And um that's that's part of love, right? So I think it's can someone know that I love them as a brother or a sister in Christ before we get down to everything else, right? One of the things I, I've come to appreciate about the church is, you know, not very often have I been asked to check my intellect at the door, you know, when I walk in. Um, sometimes you run into like a, uh, a bad professor or catechism teacher that tells you, you can't ask that here, you can't, like we've already d discussed this or whatever. But by and large, I've been, you know, sent down rabbit holes and offered books to read and people that like offered to have discussions with me. And I think when the church is like not functioning at its best, it are, are people trying to like lay down this, this truth as if it has to be like understood and processed all at once and accepted like unambiguously. And I think one of the things that we see in Jesus is, you know, in meeting people where they're at, he gives them both time and space to wrestle with things. Right. And so, so many, I think people feel like they've been told they can't wrestle with something or they'll be told that's not Catholic or you're not Catholic if, you know, you, you have questions about that. But um, when we're at our best, I think, you know, as, as Francis says, time is greater than space. And if we give time to, you know, have truth convert us, because ultimately we be, believe truth as a person in Jesus, I think that's, that's something I have really appreciated as I've gotten older. And not to be afraid of questions and not to be afraid of doubts. Mm -hmm. you know, so you think of uh, St. Gregory the Great said that doubting Thomas's doubt did more for us than the faith of the apostles because Thomas's doubt led him to the wounds of Christ and to that whole beautiful illumination we have in, at the end of John's Gospel. But no, that's exactly right. It's like, as Thomas said, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. You know, so every Sunday we stand up and pray the Nicene Creed and we can say, yes, we believe these things. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't fully believe as the Lord wants me to believe. So I'm in this tension between belief and yet not fully believing perhaps as, as the saints believed. So I, I'm in this position of, of growing into a deeper faith and knowing that ultimately faith isn't just intellectual assent, the truth. Ultimately, faith is a living relationship with the Lord where we live this life of surrendered trust, knowing of his love for us, and that gives us the freedom to, to move forward, right? Another, another part of the church you mentioned um, is your love of the sacraments, and I won't, I won't ask you to pick your favorite, <laughs> but I'm wondering yeah. if, if there's one um, in particular that, that you um, have always felt most drawn to or inspired by or that has been really important in your own faith journey? The easy one is the Eucharist. I think if, if you ask any priest, what's your favorite thing to do as a priest, they're going to say celebrating Mass. But I think of the, the tens of thousands of times, places, contexts that I've been privileged to celebrate Mass and the, the commonality of that, that every Mass in a sense is the same but yet the uniqueness of every single one. So when I was um, ordained a priest, there's that moment when you're laying on the floor during the litany of saints. And I remember laying there thinking, 
God, I just feel like whatever I ask you right now, you're going to give me because like I'm handing my whole life over to you. So I'm going to ask you two things. One was that I would never abandon my vocation. And the other is that celebrating mass would never become routine for me. So that every time I'd celebrate mass, it would be somehow a new, unique revelation of God. And I can honestly say that he's answered that. It's like in the mass we have, you you look out at the people that are gathered. We hear the word of God. We enter into the Paschal mystery. We're sharing in the liturgy of heaven. You know, the the Greeks had two um, words for time. One was chronos, one was kairos. And chronos time is chronology, calendars, clocks, schedules. Chronos time is when you've been at work for seemingly six hours and you look at the clock and it's nine ten. Kairos time is when you've done something for five hours and it feels like five minutes. So when we go into Mass, we're leaving Kronos time and we're entering into Kairos time. But yeah, for me, the Eucharist is everything. It's, um, it's either the most beautiful thing that God could have ever given us, you know, the fullness of Christ's presence in sacramental form by which we literally receive God into our being in a physical way, or it's, it's the greatest imposture, right? It's, it's one or the other. It's... Um, and and that's I, I love Catholicism because of the Eucharist. I was just going to say, if you were asking God for things and you were pretty sure you're going to get them, I'm sure your flock would have appreciated asking for like three Packers Super Bowls while you're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I failed on this yeah. one. <laughs> um, that, that's right. I think you guys got a few coming. Um, no, but the uh, for me, the way the church is both like the sacraments have formed my imagination is I'm so grateful for, it, and it, it took some like. Uh, good college professors to kind of open me up to this, but you know, like in the Eucharist, if I have to look at a piece of bread and believe that that is God, that at the very least has to train my imagination to, you know, look in all the places I wouldn't expect and look for grace and look for God. And the more I, I practice at that, the more I struggle with with believing that, the the better I get, at, you know, being out in the world and finding God when I meet them there. I, I'm curious if like how your own imagination has been shaped by the sacraments. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think about that all the time. Zach. It's amazing you brought that up because I just think um, things are never what they seem, right? Like things are always greater, deeper, holier than what they appear on the surface. It's like a scientist could look at the sun and say, this is a, a gaseous ball of energy in the universe. Christian looks at the rising sun and says, here's a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. That's why we celebrated mass facing east. Somebody could look at a homeless person lying on the street and say that this person is just a, a drag on society. Mother Teresa would, would come to that person with tremendous reverence and say, here is Christ in his distressing disguise. So what you see all depends on where you stand. But the sacramental imagination leads us to say, there, there's a depth of being, there's a, a fundamental supernatural energy and action behind even the most mundane things. And like, like you said, to, for faith to invite us to look at what looks like a piece of bread and say, this is the fullness of God. Like if, if I can make that leap, then I can ideally look at anybody and see the presence of God in them or or even look at the cross and see grace and glory, right? 
You mentioned talking to the woman on the plane and telling her about your faith and her feeling like it was too good to believe. And that's something I've often felt about confession, which I feel like is the sacrament that's kind of gone most out of style. You know, people still want to get their babies baptized. They want to get married. But a lot of people have stopped going to confession. Um, the numbers just just show that. But personally, it's been like a very important part of, of my faith. I When I was in like, after I got my first confession in elementary school, we our family would generally try to go once a month. And if we had, if it had been more than a month, I would start getting stomach aches. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little overly pious or a little bit too much fixated on the guilt, but um, I'd like go to my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night and be like, I need I need Tums, because I was embarrassed to tell them that I wanted to go to confession, because then they would know that I had sinned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't know at all. No, no. <laughs> but I will say later in life, it became really a big, a, a turning point in, in my life and in my faith, you know, in, in college, I was at a pretty, pretty low point feeling pretty bad about myself um how i was treating myself how i was treating others and during the week before easter one year i decided to to go to confession for the first time in a while it was it was a dominican priest so good i have a soft spot for them even though i work for the jesuits (laughs) and and you know so i go in cried, tell all my sins, expect, you know, a lashing in return. And my penance was to go and sit in the pew and think about how much God loved me uh, for 10 minutes. And and I remember walking out with just this, this lightness. And like, literally, like when I went outside, it was like, you know, it was a beautiful spring day in, um, in Charlottesville. And I, the world just looked different, because like so much had accumulated. And, and this experience of God's infinite mercy just just wiped it all away um and so I, I think back on that experience and then i think in my own life in the times where i've not like been like yeah i i can't go to confession yet like i can't do it and you you resist it because you know you're not ready to forgive yourself you think how can god forgive me like like i said it feels too good to be true so i'm wondering uh, your experience with the sacrament of confession and you know what you would say to those people who been gone for a while um either think it's like overly focused on on guilt or or think it is too good to be true that they can be forgiven when when i think of confession i think of going to the doctor and i don't like doing that either uh, right no, it's like, who, who wants to go to the doctor who wants to go to the dentist who wants to face their sins right so nobody wants to go to the doctor but when i go to the doctor and he's going to essentially say, let's say I need to go to the doctor for a specific reason. Doctor's going to say, where does it hurt? And is going to ask probing questions for me to, to reveal my symptoms or to show my wounds or to be vulnerable. And it's only in that vulnerability that healing can take place. So I think beauty of confession is that I can go to this place, to this priest, who I'm really confessing to Christ because he's serving as the altar Christus, uh, in the person of Christ. And I'm being vulnerable to the Son of God, who in his life, death, and resurrection has been completely vulnerable to me. And he's simply going to fill me with with love and mercy and forgiveness if I'm sincere in my desire to, to hand over my sin. So both as a confessor and a confessee, 
I've experienced the remarkable mercy of God. So I always just tell people, um, just do an experiment. If you don't go to confession at all, do an experiment. Go once a month for a year, whether you want to or not, just go 12 times. And at the end of that, ask yourself, am I more at peace? Am I happier? Have I grown in virtue? Have I overcome some of my bad habits? And I think the answer to all those is, is going to be a, a resounding yes. So come in, just unburden your heart. It's a place of such confidentiality. No one is ever going to reveal what you've said. So it's a place where I can come in burdened with self-loathing, with guilt, with sin, and leave liberated. So I say to people, just just try it once, and um, it it will free you and heal you, as as you yourself say, Ashley, for you. My takeaway is if I if I do try this experiment and I don't grow in virtue, then I don't have to go to the dentist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. something like that. Okay, good. Um, want to pivot to the saints, something you bring up um, that uh, you love about the church. And this is something that certainly um, has, has meant a lot to me throughout my life. I'm curious if, if you have a team of saints that you look to in your in your life and in your ministry uh, that have been particularly helpful to you along the way. Most powerful saints for me would be uh, St. Therese, the little flower, uh, Joan of Arc, who I'm just uh, completely captivated by, St. Maximilian Kolbe, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, St. John Vianney, St. John Paul II. I mean, list could go, I could go on It's an forever. all-star team right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I always think of the saints as, saints are to holiness what astronauts are to outer space. It's like astronauts explore the outer reaches of possibility where most of us don't dare to go. Saints, in many ways, were ordinary people and oftentimes even great sinners who at some moment in their life were so captivated by the love of God that everything in their life changed. And they allowed God so much access, so much freedom, so much entree into their life that, that they were transformed. Um, so they show us what, what holiness is possible on earth. They point us to heaven. And they're in heaven even as we're sitting here talking, praying for us, loving us, interceding for us. So... I've always been obsessed with the saints. They're, they're just uh, incredible. All right. Well, we're going to give you an opportunity to add one player to your team um, because the last question that we ask all of our guests on Jesuitical is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Whoa. Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? That's a great question. I have to narrow it down to one person, right? Wow. <laughs> who would I say? Present company excluded. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, all the priests of the diocese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would think one would be Dorothy Day, who's not yet canonized in terms of you know Catholic worker and just her radical vision of serving the poor. Another one would be G.K. Chesterton. I've always been entranced with his writings. And he came to Catholicism much later in life, so he really grappled with it intellectually, you know, to your 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 point. Exactly. Those two um, immediately stand out for me. But, but I also say probably one of my grade school teachers who just really loved us and showed us the face of the Lord. And I just remember everything that, that she taught us because her heart was just completely united to him. That's beautiful. Well, Bishop Donald, thank you so much for joining us, for, for chatting about the church today and why you love it. And thanks for the welcome to Madison. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being here. It was a great joy. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, What do we got this week, Ashley? So we are getting closer to our second road trip for Jesuitical this year. We're going to be down in Arlington, Virginia, just outside D.C., for a conversation with Cardinal Wilton Gregory on a listening church in a divided nation. And this is put on in conjunction with Georgetown University's initiative on Catholic social thought and in public life. I have two points here. One, you do need to register for this event. So we've got the link in the show notes for that. Uh, So please come out and see us if you're in the D.C. area. What is is the, the DMV? Yeah. <laughs> That's what people call it. If you're in the DMV. Nova, Northern Virginia. <laughs> yeah. If you're in Nova, please come see us. My, the second thing is, have you alerted your parents that we're coming to stay with them? I have. We, we got a strong crew. I think four of us are going to be down there. Awesome. Um, my mom's actually going to be out of town and is no! so sad that she's going to be missing you guys. Um, uh, that's so, but, terrible. But I love a trip to the McKinless homestead. So I'm really looking forward to that. And really looking forward to seeing everybody again in D.C., our interview with Cardinal Wilton Gregory. Want to also give a huge shout out to the new Patreon supporters that have joined uh, recently. So want to send a big thank you to Carter, uh, Z. Joseph, and Patricia Jones. Uh, Thank you all so much for signing up. Uh, You can join them and support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes, early notice on events and things like that. You can do that at patreon.com slash americamedia. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week, I want to do a check-in on my New Year's rev- resolution, which was, I mentioned it briefly at the on our first episode this year, is that I wanted to just, I wasn't journaling. I didn't want to set the bar too high. I've tried to journal before and I just fail. So it was just write down one thing, one thing from the day that was surprising, that you're grateful for, that you just want to remember. Because I had this feeling, I don't know if you are experiencing this now that you're in your 30s, that like years are going by so fast. And maybe it's also the pandemic, like whenever anyone's like, oh, it's 2024. It's like the pandemic, it's four years ago. I normally don't feel this way in like (laughs) January, February. This is usually where time seems to expand. But generally, yes. yes. Um, And so this was kind of distressing to me, this feeling that like life was kind of slipping through my fingers and I have a terrible memory. And so I was just like, all right, this is a practice that's going going to, you know, at least I'll be able to look back and remember remember a few things. Um, so I've actually stuck to it. Um, and so at the end of January, I like went back and looked at looked at what I had written down. So you wanted to just take the segment to pat yourself on the back or? <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. No, I want to realize that I'm realizing something at 33 that most people have already figured out, um, that this became like a really helpful tool for my prayer. Um, I've always... I understand the examine. I've always wanted to be good at the examine. But in addition to having a bad memory, I really can't picture things. I have like mild aphantasia. Like, so it's like, wow, break like, that down for me. So it's, this is a real condition where people can't like conjure images in their head. Like, like if I close my eyes and like say, imagine what Zach looks like. like I can't see you. Um. What about like, if I say the word like elephant, can you know? 
Ah, this is, I'm learning new things. <laughs> yeah. So and it makes like this the practice of going back through your day and like looking for God. And I've always like struggled with it just because like it's not a very <laughs> engaging activity for me. So I found that like this practice of just like writing one thing down has kind of like filled that gap for me and and using memory and prayer um, and and in the same way that people talk about the examine of like making you more aware throughout your day of things to be grateful for. And um, I've, I've definitely experienced that, too. So, yeah, this is like a kind of a PSA of like, <laughs> like you may have heard of a prayer practice in theory and it sounds good, but find a way that works for you. Accommodate it. And like now that I've experienced it, like all the times I've talked about the exam and actually are making sense in my life in prayer life. That's fascinating. <laughs> I had no idea. I like imagine that would impact a lot of prayer, not just the exam. And yeah, the... no, like imagine a prayer, like imagine Jesus sitting in the corner. I'm like, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah. So I think that's really great that you've like yeah. found a, a way to uh, aid your prayer in a way mm -hmm. that's like not, I don't know, beating yourself up over this thing that you have <laughs> that is no fault of your own. Yep. All right, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is recorded in the William J. Loeshert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>